This is Strange Assembly, episode 103. Well played. I am, as always, your host, Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. I'm here today with a new guest host, Dave Leach. Hey, Dave. Hey, Chris. I gotta love the title of this podcast. Thank you very much. <laughs> yes. So this is the first time we, we've had Dave on the show, and we're going to be talking about some a variety of board games. The audience might want to know a little bit about you, Dave, and if you don't brag about yourself, I'll make sure to, to give you a lead-in, but you know, oh, feel free to do it yourself. Very kind of you. Hey, I'm Dave Leach, and I am the owner of Well Played. I am, We own a uh, online and event convention meetup-based uh, board game retailer here in Atlanta. Well, that wasn't bragging on yourself at all. That was just pitching your store. Bragging on yourself would be, I'm Dave Leach. I went on Jeopardy, and I won. And then I went on the Tournament of Champions, and I won more money, and I'm so awesome that now I get to make a living playing and selling board games, unlike <laughs> you mere mortals. This is why Le- uh, my girlfriend Leslie it says that she is my publicist, because she loves to bring it up where it seems a little unseemly to just go around saying, oh, hi there, Dave Leach, six-time Jeopardy champion, nice to meet you. <laughs> well, that's what you have me for. <laughs> <laughs> Very kind of you, Chris. Thank you so much. Okay. But let's not get talking about Jeopardy, because this is a board games podcast, and if you get me started talking about the show, I will not shut up about it. <laughs> we, we could save that. Maybe we'll let you, you go off after the closing credits. You can talk about it for a while. That sounds good. That. But this is a, a board games podcast, so let's just uh, launch right into the first one, and I want to talk about Love Letter. Of course, we've talked about, uh, I'm going to say the original Love Letter, by which I mean the original English le- release of Love Letter last year, which was, it was originally released in Japan. It was picked up by Alderac Entertainment Group, skinned with their Tempest line, and which I think you can, episode 82 or something like that was our, or maybe 72, I should keep track of my own episode numbers better. Uh, we talked about the AEG Tempest Love Letter, which was fantastic. So there are, are two more, another version of Love Letter that just hit, which is what I'm going to be talking about now. But first, I'm going to I'm going to brag on the fact that if you don't check out our website, you can visit strangeassembly.com, and you can see we recently got to do an announcement that there's going to be a Legend of the Five Rings-themed version of Love Letter coming out that is then going to be used as a side event at, at Legend of the Five Rings tournaments next year. So I'm very pumped about that. But right now we're talking about the Kanai Factory Limited Edition. Seiji Kanai is the designer of Love Letter. And so what this version is, is AEG bringing to the United States the original artwork and design of Love Letter, uh, just an English translation of the the card text. The titles actually in the original game were both in Japanese and English. I'm not going to go over all of Love Letter because you can you can check that out before. This one is functionally identical except for the minister who is called the Countess in the Tempest version. And instead of making you discard the Prince of the King if she's caught with them, the minister makes you lose if he's ever in your hand with the princess or the, the five or the six who are the general 
and the the wizard. It also comes with alternate promo versions of the princess, a princess with glasses and a prince. And I guess technically there's a rules difference in that you automatically just you always just play to four rounds instead of playing to a variable number of rounds, but that really you can do in either version. I definitely think that you should own a version of Love Letter because it's cheap and it's really good. I personally still like the Tempest one better. I know there's a certain cachet to being to having you know the original version, but I actually like the artwork better in the Tempest version, and I like the Countess better than the the Minister. Love Letter is certainly replete with one-shot kills, but the Minister seemed a little. I guess I think it was a little less fun to get taken out by the minister because it was getting killed by your own drawing of a card instead of getting killed by something that another player did. But you you've played both versions, I think, Dave. What did you think about if somebody's going to pick up one version or the other? That's you know it's a hard call. I've got to agree with you that I think in the translation they certainly improved the way that card number seven works, the minister and the countess. The countess. It has a big drawback. You know, if you get the five, the six, or the eight, any of the other top four cards, you're going to lose card number seven. Uh, and in that case, there's a decent chance you're going to lose the hand because you're losing out such a highly ranked card. But at least you have a chance to hang on and win the hand if you get caught with two high cards. In the original version, you're just out. And that can be very punishing. In the game that you and I played a couple of weeks ago, it happened to the same player three times in a row. And you you feel bad for him because there's just nothing to be done. I mean, granted, Love Letter is a game of quick hands. It is quick playing. It's meant to be, if you're out in this hand, don't feel bad. There's another hand coming in just two minutes. But there is something that is a little too brutal about the original uh, Minister. I do agree with that. Okay, so that is, is Love Letter. Go pick the version you want, uh, or wait for the L5R1, but definitely worth worth picking up. Uh, and that's the English version is from AEG and it's designed by uh, Seiji Kanai. And actually, I think our next game, Dave, you have another big in Japan game from AEG. That's funny. Yeah, you know, it's it's neat to see so many games from Japan coming out. I was going to say about Love Letter, the, the, the Kanai version, what I like about it is it does have that original art, and it does feel significantly different from what we see here from the European games and the American games, where so many of them are either medieval-themed or zombie-themed. That seems to be the two we go with. So as more games are coming from Japan, Love Letter and Trains, which we're just about to talk about, I hope that means we're going to see more different settings, you know, more more things that are Japanese. They've got their own culture, their own tropes, their own style, and I hope more of that makes it over here. It's a nice change. <laughs> don't, don't get too excited because another one of AEG's big in Japan game is... The little micro games is Card of the Dead, which is oh. a zombie thing. <laughs> <laughs> so what you're saying is I can't cross the Pacific and avoid zombies. Uh, yeah, I don't think you can. <laughs> well, speaking of trains, as you said, it is an AEG, and it is out uh, this month. It's coming out in August of 2013, and as a matter of fact, I think when we're recording this, there's still another week until it's officially out. We were lucky enough to get a little bit of an early copy of it, so we've played it you know, quite a few times and enjoyed it very much. If you've not heard about Trains at all, it is very similar to Dominion. It's a deck-building game. What makes it distinct, though, is that it comes with a game board. 
as part of playing the game, you're not just trying to get your card engine going where you can generate currency in order to buy the cards that that get the victory points and win the game, though that is an aspect of it. There are two other ways to earn victory points in trains, and they all have to do with building a network of rail on this uh, game board. So the players are racing to connect their way into various cities, build stations. Stations are what gets you victory points in that regard. The sooner you get there, the tougher it is for other opponents to come into the same city where they can give victory points for stations as well. So there's you're rewarded for being first and punished for following the, the lead. As I say, it is very similar to Dominion. The first time you play it, you're going to be pointing at cards and saying, oh, that's the silver, that's the gold, that's the province. In some cases, they cost precisely the same. They just have new names. But there are a couple of distinct differences in gameplay. The game board, as I mentioned, is one, and there are two ways to get victory points from that. But the other is there are no limits on your turn. You may take as many actions as you want, and you may buy as many things as you want. And we see that in more and more deck builders that are coming down the pike. You know, originally Dominion came in with that mechanism that you just do one thing and you just buy one thing. Other cards may change that, but that is the base mechanism of the game. Trains goes about it a different way altogether. Many of the cards and actions, in particular the ones where you are building onto the board, give you what are, give you waste cards. And waste cards may as well be the curses of trains. They don't cost you victory points, but they do absolutely nothing. They are just there to get in your way. So this is what paces you throughout the game. You're welcome to take as many actions as you want, but every time you do it, or most times you do it, you're going to be picking up waste, which will slow you down. Of course, there are ways to get rid of waste. There's even a Thunderstone-style skip your turn and rest out the waste that's in your hand mechanic to keep it from being too bad. But those are the big differences between Dominion and Trains. I should say I like Dominion. I always have. It's one of my favorite games. And I find Trains to be a nice change of pace. But as time goes on, and as I play both games more, I find I'm more interested in playing more games of Dominion than I am playing more games of Trains. The deck building in Trains is strategic. Just like in Dominion, you can see all the cards that are available to you. You can buy anything at any time. There isn't an Ascension or a Legendary-style market of cards that's constantly changing. So you can always buy all the cards as long as you can afford it. What's tactical about the game is the game board. You're going to, when you draw your hand of cards, examine how many coins do you have. Do you have the cards that will allow you to build train track or build stations? Do you want to spend the money that it takes to extend your rail network? Is that the best use of the coins that you got this turn? Or should you continue to improve your deck, knowing that building out your rail network is one of the game timers? So I like that about it. I like that there's some strategic aspects and some tactical aspects about it. I will say after about a half a dozen plays of trains, I'm very interested to see how it changes as it's expanded. I think the game will probably get better. Right now it feels a little too simple to me, 
And I'm interested to see what will happen when they add new abilities, they add new cards, and in particular, when they add new abilities that are more specific to trains than simply being a rehash of a Dominion card. You know, the the card that's upgrading your trains is works exactly the same way as mine does in Dominion. I'd like to see what they can take the train setting and do that's unique. Chris, you and I played this a couple of weeks ago. What did you think of it? Yeah, we talked about this on uh, on episode 101 uh, after I had played it that one time. Since then, I have my own copy of Trains, and I have also played it a bunch of times with fours and with twos. And it, it, there's definitely a, a difference with, between four and two with with how the the board work. And and I do have to say that a lot of what I think about when I play Trains is going back and thinking about Dominion and and what I really think about D- Dominion anymore, because there, are, you know, there are some things like there, there are a number of cards that are exactly the same as Dominion cards. There's a Throne Room, there's a Wishing Well, there's a Mine. They cost exactly the same as those cards do in Dominion, but they can also play completely differently. Throne Room is 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 an awful, worthless card in Trains because you very often don't even have actions in your hand. I mean, it's not like Dominion where you can't not buy actions because everything that's not a treasure or a province is an action. It only copies actions, but you might be playing lay rails cards and and, and then train cards, and there's a lot more different kinds of... The, the trains are are the are all money, so I guess for the, those who aren't played. So unlike Dominion, trains launches with effectively a lot of different kinds of money that you can buy out of the the pile. That one's better. You had Wishing Well in Dominion, which was okay. You have Control Room in Trains, which is, again, pretty lousy. There's really no reason to ever buy it instead of just buying the Express Train, although maybe that's true of Wishing Well and Silver in Dominion. <laughs> I mean, right now, a lot of what it makes me think about is that I, you know, I have played Dominion a ton, a ton, a ton, a ton. I have Every Dominion expansion except the most recent one. And at some point I realized that, like, I don't care anymore. On the one hand, I sit there and I feel like, yes, Dominion was this really good game. And it did this almost completely new thing that was really fantastic and exciting. But now, there are so many games that do things like what Dominion does that I haven't played 5,000 times and that in, in some ways do it better than Dominion or in a more evolved way in Dominion. I don't know if better is really the right word. When I go back and I think about Dominion now, I'm not sure exactly where I really place it. Like, I still have this really high rating for it on Board Game Geek, but I don't really actually want to play it. And And I actually would go the other way. I would rather play Trains now than Dominion. Partially that's just because it's newer, because it's adding the interaction with the board is something different. I still think that there is a lot of potential in the deck building mechanic to go beyond just straight up deck building. Trains does some standard refinements like you were talking about, Dave, on the deck building thing. Like You usually don't see any more Dominions. I can only buy one thing, or I can only play one card. I mean, especially the if you only get to buy one thing, there's really never any reason whatsoever to only buy 
to buy anything but the most expensive thing you can buy unless they unless the designer has just mispriced the cards. Train the presence of the waste in trains also messes with that a little bit because you can you get a lot of waste in your deck. You could there will be times when you look at your discard pile and there are 30 cards in your discard pile and 10 of them are wastes. And the presence of waste in the deck and the fact that there's only one card and no standard way to get the like the copper equivalent out of your deck means that the average card quality in your deck actually stays relatively low, which gives you more of a reason potentially to actually split up your buys than you might because it that, that sort of thing matters more. It makes card filtering better. It makes random card draw worse. Like in, uh, if I was playing something like Dominion, a card, probably one, like one copper and a card draw is better than two copper generally because whatever I draw, I mean, if you, if you, if you don't have action limitations, because whatever you draw is going to be better than a copper. So, of course, I'd rather have one coin and a card draw, but I, I really don't think that's the case in trains because there's a good chance that whatever you draw, is, I mean, the chances of whatever you draw being better than just one more money are, are not great, and, and it might be worse than that. It's funny to hear you say that, because my impression in trains is that because there is no action limit, card drawing is so much more valuable than it is in Dominion. I mean, I'm not going to turn down extra card draws in Dominion, but they don't they didn't seem to have as big an impact on my turn as they did in trains. Like I said, that's sort of assuming that you have the actions to use it, yes. I mean, in, in Dominion, something that's just draw X cards, that can have an issue because you may not be able to play whatever you draw, but I, I guess the point is just that you're, the average quality of a card in your deck is pretty low in trains. It doesn't change as much. I think... A lot of times with deck building games, you're, you're, it's all about stripping things out. Like right in Dominion, you're like, oh, I have $4 on my first turn. Buy Chapel. <laughs> oh, yes, you're absolutely right. And that is one thing I miss in trains is there aren't as many cards that let you trash. So I'm, I still do come at it with a Dominion mindset that you know, trashing is one of the big things that get your deck better and get you closer to winning. It is. You just don't have the option. There's plenty of things in trains in addition to the built-in rulebook resting method that that lets you get rid of those waste. I mean, there have to be because you're just constantly acquiring waste. But the mine equivalent is the only one that lets you get rid of the 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 copper equivalent, the normal train. Yeah. Uh, and so that is that is definitely a big difference. I don't think it's it's worse. I think it's just something you have to to keep in mind if you're coming from a normal deck builder. I think trains in the the Japanese version was I think it made a splash last year at Essen and AEG, I don't know what the yeah, like you said the official store release date might be later this month. Right now as we speak, well okay, no not as we speak because it's 7:30 so the main exhibit hall is closed, but earlier today <laughs> AEG was selling them a Gen Con, so I'm also just going to take this opportunity to gratuitously mention to everyone who got to go to Gen Con when I didn't because I had to to stay home because my wife is so pregnant. I hate you. (laughs) 
happy to get that off your chest, Chris. Yes, I just wanted to mention that again. I've, I've, I've mentioned that before, but I'm just saying I hate I hate you. And you say hated the most loving terms possible. I'm oh, sorry. yes. Yes, oh, yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> okay, so we've asked Spiel, right? That's, uh, or asked Spiel, that's, that's the big German thing. So I will go to uh, what I consider to be a German mistake of recent times and talk about Augustus. Designed by Paolo Mori, and I'm not... Does this have a U.S. release yet, now that I think about it? It is about to. I believe it's due out this uh, here in August as well. Yeah, except it's called like Rise of Augustus. Anyhow, so this was one of the games that was nominated for the Spiel des Jahres. Hanabi won. Hanabi's pretty good. I know, Dave, you adore Hanabi. Oh, very fond of Hanabi. I've lost <laughs> it 50 times. I will happily lose it 50 more. Yeah, but uh, in Augustus, each player... You have a, a certain number of, of player boards and each of, of little boards in front of you. I think you have three of them at a time. And, and each board represents a Roman senator or what else do they represent? A province, a senator or, or a province of, of the Roman Empire. And each of these has on its left edge a number of symbols. There's swords, there's daggers, there's chariots, and there's shields, and there is a bag. And... One player at a time draws chips out of this bag, and if the chip, whatever chip it is, if it matches, you get you get to pick one of the matching symbols on one of your boards, and you put a little token on it. And then when you have completed a board, you go Ave Caesar, and you score a certain number of points, you get to replace a new board, and uh, the game ends when one player has scored seven boards. When you score boards, they may just be worth points. They may give you some sort of ability like knocking chips off of another player's board or letting you move your chips around or letting you add more chips onto your board. There's also some bonus point things you can get. The first player to get, uh, I think, so you know, the, the certain number of senators gets the little senator bonus card. The first player to get the appropriate number of African provinces gets a bonus card for that. And Western European, Eastern European, there's... And then the first player to get one of each, and you can get little bonus points for that. There's also uh, some of the boards have symbols on them for wheat or gold, and you can get the token for that for having the, the most of those. As you add more boards at once per game, you can grab the little victory point, a bonus victory point token that matches up with the number of boards that you just have. So you kind of have to decide... Do you grab a weaker one sooner, or do you go for a bigger one and risk uh, risk losing it? Now, you know the Spiel des Jahres is it's a it's a big deal. Being nominated for it means a lot of sales for a game, but Augustus has been called Gamer Bingo, and I think that that's a fair description. It definitely has decisions, but I have to say I don't get it. The game really does mostly amount to sitting there waiting for someone to draw chips out of a bag, and then you say bingo when you've filled up your board. There's some strategy. I mean, you got to pick the next one that comes up. You may, you know, decide to go for which thing or another, but but man, there's just not a lot lot to this. It's short, and so that is better than it being long and random. Short and random is better than long and random, but. Like I sat there and I played it and I'm like, wow, that just wasn't fun. And then, then I played it again and I'm like, no, no, that's still not fun. 
Have you had the chance to play this, Dave? I have. I've probably played it about a half a dozen times, and I, I applaud you for giving it another chance uh, and, and coming back and saying, no, this still isn't fun. Yeah, I've been calling it Fancy Bingo, because I like to call fancy Yahtzee games, such as Elder Sign or the recent Malo or a Raw the Dice game, which is still one of my favorites. I call those all, all fancy Yahtzee games, and i got to say, I like them. You're not wrong in saying that luck is a large component of this game. Luck is almost entirely this game. (laughs) You're right. There aren't many decisions to make. You're going to be dealt a hand of six cards at the beginning, so you get to choose the three you're going to start with. So that gives you a little bit of control over what it is you're chasing. And then each time you complete a card, you're going to choose from the bank, the, the, the visible bank, which one you're going to start next. But You're right. Beyond that, there really aren't many, if any, decisions to make. And so that's going to be a disappointment to a lot of gamers. In its defense, Augustus is a very social game. And that's something I've been paying a little more attention to as often as I play. I've never been the kind of gamer who likes to get on websites such as Board Game Arena, iPad versions of games. And, and just sit down and play games either against artificial intelligence or against other players over the internet, because what you miss out on is the social interaction. And that is such a huge and, for me, appealing part of, the, of this hobby that I miss it greatly when it's gone. So Augustus is a very social game. There's going to be moments, anytime anybody hits a Ave Caesar, where you're going to need to take a moment and that person's going to make the decisions on which bonuses do they claim, which card are they going to take. There's a moment of downtime there, and that's a moment to just chat and kibitz and talk to the other players in the game. And the more complicated games I play, I find it's harder and harder to get those moments edgewise in the middle of a game. I like more complex games, don't get me wrong, but I think there is room for a game like Augustus. At a convention I was at about two months ago, there was one copy available. Someone had a a, a European printing of it, and the game was played almost continuously. Well played, it is our most pre-ordered game. People who have played it really want to own a copy of it. And it may well be that this is not a game that stands up to a lot of replay. But right now, I guarantee that if you've got a copy of it, people are going to see it, and they're going to want to play it, either because they've heard about it, they heard about this Spiel des Jahres nomination, or they have played it once before, remembering it being a fun experience, and want to play it again. Much like Trains, I'm curious about how this game will expand. One of the uh, bonuses in the game is certain of the provinces have little commodities printed on it. Some of them have gold and some of them have wheat. And right now, Those are the only two that are connected to any sort of bonus, but there must be a dozen different commodities that appear on the cards, which to me hints strongly that there's more coming. They're going to be doing something to expand it, something to change it, so I'm curious to see how that's going to work. And one thing I think we forget as hobby gamers who actually know what the Spiel des Jahres is, the Spiel des Jahres is a family award. If you look back through the history of it, there are many family games that don't get play anymore because you know they're, they're just not that sophisticated, they're just not that interesting, but they have won. That's why they split the award recently, and now there is the Kennerspiel, the hobby game of the year. 
And so it's still – don't read too much into the fact I think, that this is a Spiel de Jahr nominee because <laughs> that still is – you know, it's, it's, it's a reward for being a good family game. Somebody I was talking to recently, I don't remember who, but um, someone who has lived in uh, Germany in the past said that because Hanabi won the award that year, that means Hanabi is going to be on the shelves in grocery stores and drug stores, and it's going to make it very widely available, which I think is something that kind of blows our mind here in America. When mm-hmm. Your average city might have two or three shops that sell these kind of games, if that many. So that's still a European thing, and that has meaning to them that it doesn't necessarily have to us. Yes, yeah. I mean, uh, as far as the awards go, I I honestly think the financially, yeah, the Spiel des Jahres awards are are more important for games. But I really think that like the the Golden Geeks and the Dice Tower awards are the two sort of gaming awards to pay attention to if you're a board slash card gamer. So that was Augustus. Now, yeah, available now if you're in Europe and will be available very, very soon in the United States. Let's see, and uh, I believe that you mentioned Leslie earlier. I believe she has visited the Five Villages, and so you are, you have played the game Five Villages, Dave. Indeed, I have. Or if you'd like to be a fancy and Italian about it, Cinque Terra, C I N Q U E T E R R E, for those of you keeping score at home. Cinque Terra came out back in about April or May, and we've been lovingly calling it Finca to Ride. It is a pickup and delivery game with shades of Ticket to Ride. It is set in the Italian five villages known as the Cinque Terra. They're located in northwest Italy, coming up the coast over toward France. And like you said, my girlfriend Leslie has actually been there a couple of times. It is one of her favorite places in Europe. And so when I saw that there was a game coming out called Cinque Terra, and her birthday was not uh, far behind, I knew that was something that, even if it wasn't a very good game, would be a very thoughtful gift. And as it turns out, it's a pretty good game. Just to give you a little bit of uh, information about how it works, it is a pickup and delivery game based on produce. There are three fields on the board each of which grow either two or three different kinds of produce, and there are eight scattered among those two, three fields. There are also the five villages going from north to south along the sea. On your turn, you have four actions you can do. You can either move your truck, you can draw cards. There's a bank of cards, and that's where it feels the most like Ticket to Ride. There are four face-up cards, and you can pick any one of those or draw blindly from the top of the deck and add it to your hand. The cards you can use as part of a harvest action to get the cubes that represent the actual produce. And then your fourth action is to actually sell the cubes that are on your truck to the village where you're located. Every turn you get to do three different actions, and they don't even need to be different. You can do the same thing three times or three different things or whatever order you like. And the goal is to earn lira by selling these things to the villages. As part of the variable setup of the game, there are dice, six-sided dice, and each of the five villages will get between two and four of these dice, and they show what each village is willing to pay for a particular piece of produce. Pay for a particular piece of produce. So that's one of the ways that you get victory points in the game, is simply by selling each village what it is they desire most. In addition, though, there are orders. These cards show a number of villages, usually between two and three, 
and a particular thing that they want. And if at the end of your turn you have sold those those produce to those villages, you can claim a card and get the bonus points off of it. So think of them like the tickets in Ticket to Ride. There's also a mechanism where you can get secret ones of these to hold in your hand, and everybody starts with one that shows all five villages each wanting a piece of produce. So you've got a, a, a way, you've got something to work toward right off the bat. So that's basically how the game works. There's really two strategies to pursue. One is go for the orders. Try to be the first player to have completed an order and be able to claim the matching card, which is public. Everybody can see them. And you'll be able to see, based on each player's board, where you collect the pieces that you've sold to each village. As you sell each cube, it goes onto a row of your player board, not back into the supply. So you can see what everyone has sold throughout the game. You'll be able to take a peek at your opponent, see what it is they've harvested, see what it is they've sold, and predict which orders it is they're going after. Perhaps you'll be able to beat them to it. And that's exactly why I tend to ignore the order strategy and simply go for harvesting and selling what is most in demand. Since the setup is variable, the dice are going to come up different values each time, and I find that has a lot to do with how viable ignoring the orders is. If there are a lot of fives and sixes out there, if the villages are willing to pay a lot for their produce, then I think you can get away with ignoring the orders. If it's lower numbers, you've got to pay attention to them. So that variable setup, it doesn't necessarily lead to a lot of replay value, but at least means the board is going to be different every time. There's not going to be one particular field and one particular village that you're always gunning for. It's a good game. I've probably played it a dozen times or more, and it's one I do look forward to playing again. I find the three actions per turn is interesting slash overwhelming, particular for beginners. You find that you lose count of how many actions you've done this time. Was that my second? Was that my third? Do I have one more? I'd be curious sometime to play the game with just one action per turn and see if that makes a big difference. The secret order rule can be a little bit awkward. Everybody starts, as I mentioned, with an order for a one piece of produce from each village, and the point value of that card is 30 minus question mark. <laughs> the way you figure it out is you total up the current value of each produce and subtract it from 30. The idea being, if you've fulfilled this order, you're going to get 30 points between the things you delivered, and the value of the ticket itself. It makes sense, but it is a little bit awkward. I think it's got nice bits. It's a pretty, it's a bright, vibrant game. The little trucks are cute, though I really, really want the produce cubes to fit on the backs of the trucks as you drive it around the board. And speaking of produce cubes, it would be awfully nice if they actually represented the produce themselves instead of being eight different colored cubes. Makes it a little bit harder for colorblind people to play. And we've thought about raiding our copy of Finca to steal the uh, wooden-shaped produce bits out of it, but it wouldn't quite work, and you'd be missing some anyway. But in general, Cinque Terre has been a very welcome addition to our collection. It's one we're looking forward to. Chris, have you played it? Yes, I've played it with you. Oh, has it been? (laughs) How long ago was that? (laughs) 
I think the first thing I would add is when you're playing the game, make sure to look carefully at your order cards because the tomato and the orange are not as different as you might think. Uh, <laughs> That's something I've been warning people in future games to pay attention <laughs> to. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I agree that, that this is in the, the same general depth space as as something like Ticket to Ride. I think that if you like that sort of thing, then you'll probably like Five Villages. I've seen other groups play it. I've seen people play it and enjoy it at, at Swag, the Southwest Atlanta gamers. So I think although the, the game I played with, with I think you and Leslie and, and somebody else was, I think that's the only time I've, I've played it. So I, I enjoyed it. I don't have really anything else exciting to add there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just at Atlanta Game Fest, which was back in May, I think the game had been out for about a month. We had one of the two copies that were in that were at the convention, and you know, in a game room with a hundred people playing, the game was always being played somewhere. It was very popular, and I don't see it out and about at as many meetups as I like, as I think the game deserves to be played. Yeah, it's. I, I was surprised actually when I looked on on the Geek a little bit earlier today to see how few ratings there were for it. I'm not sure how far out there it's gotten into people's awareness. So it can sometimes be easy to forget when you have like various game groups and there's like the one guy who has the European copy of this and the other guy who has the Kickstarter copy of that. That sometimes these things take a while to percolate out there, maybe. That's a very good point. And, you know, obviously, running a game store, I'm seeing tons of things come through our suppliers, and, you know, I'm I'm more plugged into that than I've ever been. I've always had a difficult time keeping up with what's new and have had <laughs> had a crash course in it running the business. So that, that does skew your perspective. You're right. Yeah, I I, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, because I, I do, it does seem like something that, that a lot of people would, would like uh, if they, they played it. Okay, so for our our next one, uh, I'm going to kick off, we're going to do three more, and the next two are going to be what I will call the sushi special. (laughs) The first one is Fish Cook from Cheap Ass Games, and unlike the the Kickstarter of Unexploded Cow, this is the traditional Cheap Ass Games, something like $10 if you buy it. You can also go on their website and actually just print everything out. Uh, if you want, and like they do with these cheap ones, if you buy it, it's it's cheap, right? It is cheap. It requires dice. It doesn't come with dice. It requires some sort of way of keeping track of money. It doesn't come with that. So if you buy it, what it does come with is a board and, and little pieces. And in Fish Cook, you are cooking various Japanese sushi and fish dishes. And every morning, you have to buy ingredients, and then in the evening, you have to cook. And so the way that the, the, there are new, newly populated ingredients every morning. And the way that works is that you roll a die. If you want to roll them all at once, you need different colors for each of the different ingredients. And the higher a number you roll, the more of that ingredient is available. And exactly how that works depends on the ingredient. You know, there's, there's always going to be more, a lot of rice available. You know, even if you roll a one, there's a bunch of rice available to buy. And you don't have to remember that it's on the board. Like it, it's got the little pips. So you just fill, put the little, they put, you put chips out on that track as, as far as the, the die you rolled. And there's ingredients on one and there's fish on the other. There's also recipe cards out in the middle at the, what they call the cooking school. 
And in the morning, you go around and you buy the ingredients. You just go around the players and you can either buy a kind, buy a piece of fish or you can buy a non-fish ingredient or you can buy a recipe, which may or may not be a valuable thing to, to do. And then when you get to the evening, then you take turns going around and cooking recipes. Now, you can cook any recipe that you see sitting out on the table. If it's in the middle, you can cook it. If it's in front of you, you can cook it. If it's in front of another player, you can cook it. Or if it's in your hand, you can cook it. And so the reason that you would buy a recipe is to stop somebody else from snagging it from you first in the cooking phase. Once you complete a recipe, if you own the recipe already, you get a money bonus. If you do somebody else's recipe, they they get it. If you cook a recipe that's in the cooking school, then you steal it. And so now you own it going forward. If you cook someone else's recipe, there's a chance that you will cook a better version of it than they do, and then it becomes your recipe. But a lot of the the strategy of it is back in the the first phase when you're buying the ingredients. So you have to look ahead to what you think you're going to cook and what you want to cook and what other people might be able to cook and plan out what to buy. And you're going to be competing with the other players, not just for how many ingredients are out there, but how much you're willing to pay for them. Because the very first piece of rice that somebody buys each turn is going to be relatively cheap. And the more that have been bought, the lower, more specifically, the less that are left to be purchased, the more expensive it's going to be. So if you really want to make a particular dish, but you wait too long to get an ingredient you need, you could end up actually losing money. And the final wrinkle is at the end of each day, all the fish goes bad. You can store other ingredients from turn to turn, but you can never store the fish from turn to turn. So you you play through five days. Whoever has the most money at the end wins. It's it's pretty light. It's pretty easy. I played it with my wife, who liked it, who, who liked it a lot. I think I actually have to go buy it, which is going to be a pain because I I I think she may have to be the one who comes up with all the dice and the money and stuff. I have to say one of my my favorite birthday presents because it when when the money is coming out of the same pool, it ceases to be that exciting to get an expensive birthday present. It's kind of like buying it for yourself. So one of my favorite birthday presents for my wife was when she she bought and sl- she bought the sleeves and then sleeved all of our Dominion cards. <laughs> that's no small feat. Yeah, no, yeah, because that's a lot of time. So I'll tell you, maybe. <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe she won't mind uh, assembling some sort of money for for use in this. Lord knows I have enough dice sitting around. That's not a problem. <laughs> don't we all? But I liked it. She really liked it. Which I, I think is good because this sort of uh, she plays a lot of games with you because kind of hit or miss for which kind of gamer games she goes for. But uh, it was light, but it was a pretty fast. I mean, it plays in less the. Well, I was gonna say it plays in less than half an hour. I guess it says it plays in forty-five minutes. Maybe I'm misrecalling how long it takes to play. So let's say forty-five minutes. I thought it was a a very Euro sort of experience, but it kind of sneaks up on you, so people don't realize that they're playing this this sort of thinky, almost action selection kind of game. That's Fish Cook from, from Cheap Ass. You, and then you have played another new game that, that came out recently, Dave, called Sushi Go. Sushi Go! There's an exclamation point in it. You've got to get excited about this one, Chris. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, 
Sushi Go! Much better, thank you. Yeah, Sushi Go is a brand new release. We just got it a couple of weeks ago, and uh, it is the most adorable card game you have laid eyes on this year. Y- you will believe that this sushi is happy about being on your plate. It is a deceptively simple game. There are only eight cards in the whole deck. Well, I mean, there's eight different cards and many copies of them, but there are only eight cards in the whole deck. And this is a card drafting game. You're going to get a hand of cards, pick the one you want, pass the remainder to your neighbor. Lather, rinse, repeat until you've played all the cards. Sound familiar? Yeah, we've been calling this game Seven Wonders that really does play in 20 minutes. I think... Seven Wonders rightfully has a place among the best games because not only is it an interesting game, but it plays quickly and can play with a large group quickly. Both of those are big strengths of the game. I bet Seven Wonders would not be half as popular as it is if you could only play four people. Sushi Go scratches that same itch. However, when's the last time you actually played Seven Wonders and it really did take half an hour? There's time you've got to spend setting up the game, filtering out the cards that should be there, the cards that shouldn't. There's often one person who's never played it before, so you've got to teach it. Sushi Go, you can teach and play very quickly. And to me, It is just as satisfying. It is scratching my Seven Wonders itch very, very well. Let's talk briefly about how the game works. As I mentioned, there's only eight cards in the deck. Most of them are just points. And thankfully, all of the cards right down at the bottom tell you exactly how many points they're worth. There are no symbols to understand. You just glance at the bottom, see what it's worth, decide if you want to play it or not. The sushi rolls are a game of majority. Whoever has the most slices of sushi roll at the end of the round earns points, and there are also points for second. There are some cards that are only worth anything if you collect enough of them. Tempura, for example, as long as you get a pair of them, the pair is worth five points. You're welcome to get more than one pair if you can pull it off, and it will be worth five as well, but a single Tempura card gets you nothing. Similarly, the Sashimi. Three sashimi are worth ten points, but one or two by themselves are not worth anything. Dumplings are a little bit like science. The more you have, the more they're worth. Nigiri is just straight-up points, either one, two, or three points. You can think of them a bit like the blue cards in Seven Wonders. The two most interesting additions to the game, I think, are the wasabi cards, which wasabi is not worth anything by itself. But the next nigiri that you choose and play must go on top of wasabi if it can, and the wasabi will triple its value. So if you never get another nigiri, it's not worth anything. And you're not allowed to play one of the less valuable nigiri to the side and hope to get a more valuable one to go on the wasabi. If you play one, it must go there. The most innovative thing is the chopsticks. Chopsticks? Not worth a thing. But you leave them sitting on the table in front of you, and if in a future turn you would like to draft two cards from the hand instead of just one, how many times has that happened to all of us, you're welcome to. Pick the two cards, put the chopsticks that are on the table back into the hand of cards that you then pass to your neighbor. That, I think, is a really neat addition to the whole mechanic. 
every round you clear the table of all the cards that you played, except for the pudding cards, which are the eighth card. They work at the end of the game a bit like the Suns in Raw. Whoever has the most puddings at the end of the game earns points, and whoever has the fewest loses. But that's all it takes to play the game. Three rounds just like that, it is absolutely adorable. It is inexpensive, it's quick playing, it has really been one of the most popular games that we've added to our repertoire this month. And I know Mike Cook, who's also, well, where, where, let's see, where is he right now if he's not here? <laughs> Don't do it, you've already done it. Yes. Just, just, just let it go. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, yeah, he, he keeps talking about how there should be more drafting games. Although I will say, I, I do adore, adore Seven Wonders, and it can totally be played in half an hour. As long as everybody knows how to play. Well, that's I, there's hardly anything that plays in half an hour if people don't know how to play. <laughs> Every once in a while, as I said, I, I taught some people how to play Seven Wonders. There were two people that were like, oh, I don't know. We don't know if we want to play. We played this. And they said, and it took like three hours. And I'm like, what? Okay. Okay. That's Whoa. Not, that, yeah, there, there's something very wrong there. I don't. That's not like somebody analysis paralysis or something. That's somebody. That's a group that clearly had no idea how this game actually worked. <laughs> I promise you, it will not take anything like that long. Yeah, that's that's an epic game of Seven Wonders, and, and not in the good way. I don't know how that's physically possible. You could go get out an encyclopedia and research what all of the Seven Wonders are, and then come <laughs> back and play the game, and it wouldn't take that long. I, I don't know. Okay, now... Our last game for today, because we are approaching the point where your cheerful editor, that's me, decides he uh, doesn't want to edit any more than one more game after we're done recording. Uh, our last game is Jason Tagmeyer's Maximum Throwdown, which I say like that because the, the rules say that whoever yells Maximum Throwdown the loudest gets to go first. Just like Sushi Go, there is an exclamation point at the end of the title. you got to get excited about it, Chris. Well, uh, yeah, no. I usually love the random cute things about who goes first, like Love Letter. It's whoever's done on a date the most recently in Mercante. It was whoever's bought or sold something the most recently. And uh, someday someone's actually going to yell Maximum Throwdown at the start again, and then I'm going to be very unhappy with them. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> so... <laughs> So, Maximum Throwdown is another uh, Gen Con release from AEG. Like I said, it's designed by Jason Tagmeyer. The closest thing I can think of to it is Flowerfall, if you've played that. It is a a small game that comes with six, let's call them decks, of 15 cards each. And each player has one deck, so it, it plays up to two to six players, and... What you are, are doing over the course of the game is taking turns, basically taking turns, throwing your cards onto the middle of the table. Your cards need to land so that they're touching an existing card, and then you are trying to have them cover up your opponent's cards. For your deck, all of the cards have the same back. One is the dragon deck, one's a samurai deck, one's a pirate deck. Mostly taken from existing AEG things. I didn't recognize some of it, but I'm guessing it's going to show up somewhere in another AEG game. And I should note, I actually like reusing good art assets. I think Tempest is fantastic like that. I don't feel any need for you to recommission 
substandard art for every new game, I would much rather you do the shared world thing and have high quality art that so I can see characters over and over again. On the front side of the card, there are symbols. And at the start of your turn, if you actually manage to have your symbols on your cards facing up, then you get bonuses. You'll get to draw more cards or throw more cards or you get to discard cards off the top of somebody else's deck, which is helpful because once their deck is done, they're done. They can't throw any more cards out. Or you might be able to take a card off of the top of somebody else's deck and throw it onto the table, which presumably means you're going to try to throw it face down, which means that none of the symbols are face up, and so they won't be able to to activate anything. There are pips on some of the cards. Every six pips is worth a point, and that's how you win. You throw until everybody has run out of cards, then you go through and everybody gets another round of, of pip scoring, and that's it. I have not played with six. I mean, you can play with two. I don't think you should. I think you should definitely try to play with three or four. More than that might work well, depending on what your attitude is. It's definitely, you have to be social while you're playing it with more people. If you're if you're just kind of standing around between turns, you're probably going to get bored if you're playing with six people. But if you're, I don't know, drinking, it probably works better. With, it probably works well with six people. <laughs> I guess I'm I'm neither enthused nor disappointed in it. I mean, it is what it is. If it's sort of like if it sounds interesting, you it probably is. If that doesn't sound interesting, you it probably isn't. What did you think about it when we played, Dave? Well, it is certainly silly, dumb fun. Uh, make no mistake. And we were playing it in a restaurant, so we could only be so silly and so dumb. I'd like to try playing it again at, say, a convention where you could push a few tables together and really get some space between you and the pile of cards and make it a little more difficult to throw things. But I'll be honest, it didn't quite do it for me if I'm going to spend half an hour playing something that I th- I'm just looking for some silly, dumb fun. I'm going to make you mad, Chris. I'd rather play Augustus. <laughs> uh, I would definitely rather play this than Augustus. <laughs> So, yeah, yeah, you definitely, you want a bigger table, you are, okay, this is obviously one of those things where you, you cannot be too rules lawyer about it. You kind of have to designate a play space, which I played it with you, Dave, and I've, I've played it with another group, and it's sort of like, okay, the table is the play area, and you're not supposed to lean over the play area, because definitely if you're just kind of plopping cards down, that's not much fun. I have not had the chance to play it on something really big, it might be interesting, like, if you have it at a con, and you have one of those big, you know, big round tables, and you kind of start it, there's... The, the way that the game starts is you seed a few location cards out in the middle that don't do anything but be... Here are your initial targets for trying to throw your cards. The rules as written say, oh, everybody's allowed to stand up and move around. When I, when I played it with you, Dave, I said, okay, now let's just try that. Let's just sit down and do this, because it's going to... It, it, it felt like if you're standing up and moving around, you're thinking too hard. <laughs> yeah, I can agree with that. The problem is that one of the card mechanics, the break icon, lets you throw a card and it doesn't have to, to meet anything. And so often you're going to be kind of just trying to put your card off into its own little no man's land. And so it's by itself. So now if another player... Another player can try to cover it up, but they have, it gives them a lot less slack if they miss with their throw than if they're throwing it into kind of this big pile in the middle where if it slides a little bit off, it's got something to hit. 
The problem if you can't move around is that the brake symbol basically means take your card and drop it right in front of you where no one else can ever hit it because they can't just walk right over and throw a card right on top of it. Are you sure you're not thinking about this too hard, Chris? I'm absolutely pretty positive I am thinking about it too hard. (laughs) The thing is that if you're playing this with gamers, there there is going to be someone in the game who thinks about it. (laughs) And then, uh, so... The rules say everybody can move around, but then after your turn, go back to your seat so you remember what the turn order is. I suggest playing with people who can remember what the turn order is and just walking around holding your deck. I think that would be more... Uh, well, one point of order there, if, if you think this is a game improved by alcohol, that would be more difficult. <laughs> well, I just... I, I mean, anything, any kind of dexterity... Uh, Social element of part of it seems like it could be improved by alcohol. I don't know. <laughs> you just need to invent Augustus the drinking game. Uh, yes. yes. <laughs> I actually am specifically going to try to in- we specifically try to introduce alcohol with the game. I I like obviously I like playing games and I tend to subject my family to them. You know, and I know which games I can do. My my stepmother, I have not. It's not as as uh, going along with it as many of the other people who would gather in that same group, like my dad and my brothers. They'll play things. So, I actually am. Jay talked about adoring viticulture. I actually I only played it once, so I have no really like formed opinions on it in the long term. But it, it certainly seemed pretty good from the one play I got out of it. And I'm actually planning on buying it specifically because my stepmother is uh, a wine aficionado. There you go. So I think that if I bust out viticulture and a bottle of wine that I can actually get her to really enjoy playing something even if rather than just tolerating it <laughs> just remember to pace yourself it's a marathon not a sprint <laughs> yes uh okay so that was maximum throwdown right that's what we were talking about we weren't talking about viticulture something enough. like 10 minutes ago yeah i think we were so that was Maximum Throwdown by Jason Tagmeyer from AEG. It, it just released at Gen Con. It, yeah, we actually already have it available. It just came out earlier this week, as a matter of fact. There you go. All right. But that is going to be it for today. So thanks for uh, coming on with us, Dave. And you are at gameswellplayed.com, is that correct? That's exactly right. Thanks for inviting, Chris. Had a really great time. And just like you say, our website's gameswellplayed.com. We're Facebook, Twitter, Meetup, all at Slash Games Well Played. And if you're ever in Atlanta, we host events all the time. Come join us. Yes, yes. To the Tuesday evenings of late, there's a pretty good chance you'll you'll see me at the, the Five Guys Camp Creek at that meetup. But I am uh, still Chris Stevenson. And similarly, you can find Strange Assembly at pretty much anything Strange Assembly on the web. StrangeAssembly.com. Facebook Strange Assembly at Strange Assembly. I always love to hear feedback, so you can leave a comment on our on our blog on the website for this episode. You can email me at chris at strangeassembly.com. We like all sorts of board games and card games. And never stop gaming. <laughs>